Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode of the Single Tracks Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people like you get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com slash singletracks to support the show and learn more. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron, Greg, and I are going to be talking about a hot topic in the mountain bike industry. We've been producing the Single Tracks podcast for over two years now, and yet this is going to be our longest, lowest, slackest podcast episode ever. That's right. Today we're going to be explaining what the whole long, low, slack thing is about and how it applies to mountain bikes. We'll also discuss what's driving these changes and what it means for folks like me who own older bikes that are short, high, and steep. Seems like we're seeing a lot of bikes being updated with the long, low, slack treatment this year. Is this an enduro thing, or does it apply to other types of bikes like cross-country? Well, first off, I'd say it's definitely not just this year. It's a trend that's been happening for five years, at least, probably even longer. It started on the longer travel end of the spectrum, but we're seeing bikes in basically every single category get the LLS treatment. Yeah, this has definitely been a pretty long-running trend, but it's now starting to hit every part of the market, like Aaron said. you know, While the changes might not be as pronounced in cross-country bikes, they're still there. Um, but I'd also mention that for most bikes, it's not like they get the LLS treatment just once and then it's over. It's been happening to a lot of models every single year, so they get a bit longer, lower, and slacker year after year after year. So this might not be our longest, lowest, and slackest podcast episode ever because we could get slacker yet. We'll see. That's true. And yeah, I mean, I think we've mentioned it in other episodes about how even cross-country racing has changed. And it's hard to say if that's because the bikes are changing or, you know, people were just ready for a change. But even cross-country courses are getting more technically demanding. And so the long, low, slack treatment works pretty well there as well. Okay, so let's dissect this whole thing and go one letter at a time in the LLS. Starting off with longer, what does it mean to make a bike longer? At its most basic, it means the overall wheelbase of the bike is getting longer. So that's the distance between your axles. Okay, are there other parts of the bike that this applies to as well? Generally, that means the top tube is getting longer, and that's going to increase the wheelbase. But a slacker head tube angle, which we'll talk about in a minute, is also going to increase the wheelbase. The front wheel gets pushed out further, and that's going to make the bike longer. We're also seeing uh, reach measurements increase on a bike, and that's partly from the uh, the lengthening of the top tube. And uh, that long reach is nice because it gives the rider more room to move around when the saddle's dropped. So what are the advantages of a longer bike, Aaron? The key advantage is going to be stability at speed. So that longer wheelbase is going to allow you to plow through rough sections. You're not going to get knocked offline as easily. I mean, if you look at downhill bikes, they have really long wheelbases, and that's because they're going really fast and they need that stability. So the same concept applies, but just in a slightly shorter package for trail bikes. Okay, so there are definite advantages to having a longer bike, but what are the disadvantages? There's got to be a trade-off, right? 
Yeah, everything's going to be a trade-off. Uh, everything's going to be a compromise. But a really long bike is going to be tough to ride on really tight trails. Uh, it can be awkward around switchbacks. So when you're looking at buying a bike, you really need to consider your local terrain. So if most of the trails that you ride a majority of the time are really tight and twisty, you don't want something that's really long because it's going to be hard to maneuver and it's just not going to be that fun. So I'd recommend taking that into account when you're buying a bike. Another potential issue that we run into is that, you know, most bike manufacturers want a long top tube, but as Aaron said, you don't want your bike to get too long. So to partially prevent the overall bike from getting too long, many brands have tried to shorten the chain stays of the bike as much as physically possible. So oftentimes we're seeing the longer top tube happen at the same time the chain stays are shortening. This usually still results in a longer bike overall but it wouldn't be as much of an increase as if, you know, say they just lengthened the top tube without adjusting the stays. So they're trying to balance some of these uh, things out as they redesign the bikes. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's definitely true, but most brands have kind of figured out the chainstay length, uh, you know, a few model, a few model years ago. And we're finally starting to see the front centers that like reach or top tube measurement to grow from brands that have been a little conservative with their geometry. You know, you look at Specialized, for instance, short chainstays have basically always been a hallmark of their bike's character, but they're comparatively short to bikes in the same category. Or another good, more recent example would be like the Pivot Mach 6. So both the previous model and the new model that just came out like a month or so ago, they have 430 millimeter chainstays, which is short. But then if you compare the reach measurements, the new Mach 6 is nearly two inches longer. So they've already dialed in the chainstay length, but yeah, the front ends are starting to lengthen to kind of catch up with what the, the current trends are. And part of that is just due to suspension design. You know, your rear wheel, when your suspension is fully compressed, it has to go somewhere. And the, that means the chainstays can only get so short before you start running into issues with the rear wheel contacting the frame, which is obviously... A big no-no. Yeah, and one more sort of minor disadvantage, or at least something I've run into with longer wheelbase bikes, is they don't fit on bike racks, at least the extra-large bikes that I'm riding. So keep that in mind if you've got an older bike rack or an expensive one, especially. I literally had a Niner bike that I was testing that would not fit on my Kuat rack. And, you know, I kind of kind of jerry-rigged it onto the car, and then drove down the road and it, it literally fell off the back. So, <laughs> so there's no getting around it. These bikes, they're longer and a lot of the bike racks just haven't kept up with that. Even the newest ones, you know, I've been asking companies lately if they have adjusted the spacing on their trays and a lot of them have not yet. So be careful. Keep that in mind. Yeah, that's a good point. One that I hadn't thought of, but I, I typically ride a large size frame and some of the newer bikes I've tested are right at the limit or just over what my bike rack can handle. So you can still kind of make it work, but you can tell it's not as stable as it should be with a shorter wheelbase bike. So good, good point. You know, I think some racks are, are trying to keep up though, you know, so these things filter out to, you know, the other component manufacturers and accessory manufacturers over time. For instance, the Dr. Trey that I just finished reviewing, uh, they lengthened the trays the actual trays on that rack from last year to this year. So um, hopefully people will keep up with that. But if you want to use your 10-year-old rack, that's that could be rough. Right. So, yeah, 
Factor that into your purchase price. You got to buy a new Dr. Trey when you buy your bike too. <laughs> okay. So we've said that a longer bike is going to be more stable, but that it's also going to be a little bit more difficult to handle on twisty trails. So let's look at the next measurement that is making bikes lower. So what part of the geometry are we talking about when we say a bike is lower? We're talking about our bottom bracket when we talk about making something lower, and that means you're lowering your bottom bracket height. Yes, and the bottom bracket, for those who are maybe brand new to the sport, is the part where your cranks are attached on your bike, so basically where you're doing all your pedaling. What are the advantages to a lower bottom bracket on a mountain bike? So a lower bottom bracket is going to lower your center of gravity, and that lower center of gravity is going to basically make it easier to turn or you'll be more confident turning. You're really going to get the sensation that the bike is on rails. And this also has to do with what's called bottom bracket drop. And this is the measurement, the vertical distance in between your axles and your bottom bracket. So if you lower your bottom bracket height, that distance is going to get greater. So you're going to be further down in between your wheels, which really gives you that sensation that you're on rails when you're cornering. So that's something that, you know, a lot of people who ride like a well-designed 29er will feel like they can, when they're cornering that the bike just is really stable. It's really confident and, you know, just, you can just rail the turns. And that's, that's because, uh, that's because of that low bottom bracket. Okay, so once again, there are obviously going to be trade-offs with this shift to a lower bottom bracket. What are some of those, Aaron? The main one is going to be pedal strikes. So a lower bottom bracket means your pedals are lower, uh, which can lead to smacking your pedals more often. You look at a static bottom bracket height, and that's just with the bike sitting there with, without a rider on it. That's that's only useful up to a point because once you hop on the bike and you set the sag properly, if you're on a full suspension, the bottom bracket's going to be lower. If you're, you know, depending on what tire size you're running and what tire pressure you're running, that's going to also affect the bottom bracket height. So once you factor all those things in, you know, what on paper seems like a decently high or average bottom bracket height can all of a sudden get really low. Part of this issue is that mountain bike companies they basically spec 175 millimeter long crank arms across the board, regardless of frame size, bottom bracket height, or suspension design. And that's probably not the best idea. You know, if you're getting a really, really low bottom bracket, you probably want shorter crank arms to kind of compensate for that and kind of negate some of those pedal strikes. But then that presents other fit issues uh, as well. So again, everything's a compromise. You got to choose, you know, pick your poison basically. Personally speaking, I don't I don't want to see bottom brackets getting any lower than they currently are. I don't I don't think it's kind of like that chainstay thing. I think we're near the lower limit because you know, they can only go so low before you're dragging your pedals on the ground. It it also again depends on your terrain. So if your trails are really buff and they're smooth, a super low bottom bracket is awesome. But when you have to pedal through chunky terrain up or down, super low bottom bracket gets really annoying. Uh, you can learn to adapt to it. But it sucks when you have to think about every single pedal stroke and how to time every single pedal stroke through chunky sections, especially when you're tired. You know, you don't want to be, you just want to pedal, you just want to get back to the car and and be done with the ride. And all of my worst crashes have come from clipping a pedal. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah. Beyond the pedal strikes too, for a lot of people, 
if you're riding trails where you have to hop over logs and stuff like that, you might find yourself getting hung up more. There's definitely technique to it where you can kind of adapt to that. But yeah, lower bottom bracket does seem to be a disadvantage in that situation. All right. Finally, in the long, low slack trifecta, we've got slack. So what does it mean to make a bike slacker? What part of the geometry is changing when we talk about slack, we're talking about the head tube angle. So we're talking about slackening out the angle of the fork in relation to the frame and the ground. So Greg, what are the advantages to a more slack head tube angle? Uh, in short, a slacker head tube angle is going to be more stable and confident while descending. And I know you're going to ask next about the disadvantages. And basically the corollary to that is like the slacker it is, the more difficult or obstinate your bike can be while going uphill. And if your head tube angle is really slack, it can make the front end feel like it's wandering around on the climbs and is essentially more difficult to control. So as a general rule, slacker is better for descending, steeper is better for climbing. Yeah, it's all about getting the weight on that front wheel. So if you have a really slacked out front end, it can be hard to get enough weight on the wheel to properly engage those knobs on your tire and this makes cornering difficult too so there there are some things you can do to compensate for this you can adjust your body position or you can lower your stem and your handlebar and that will bring kind of more weight onto the front wheel but if you're constantly fighting this problem you might be on a bike that's too slack or long for your particular terrain okay so we've talked about all three of these factors separately but is there synergy in making sort of all these changes at once, you know, like if you make a bike longer, do you also need to make it lower and slacker? As Aaron mentioned, you know, slackening the head tube angle simultaneously makes, makes the bike longer. So to some extent, it's impossible to do the one without the other. But I do think there's some synergy to adjusting these things at the same time. As Aaron said, you know, you do want to make adjustments for the head tube angle while climbing and making a bike longer simultaneously like brings your torso a little bit more forward on the bike depending on what you're doing with everything else on it as we mentioned there's a lot of factors going on but that could also help tame your head tube wandering or rather front wheel wandering from a slack head tube angle on the climbs so there's definitely synergy there and i don't think that necessarily means brands always adjust all things on every model sometimes from one year to the other the tweaks seem really small but then they end to tend to add up over time as things go along. Right, yeah, most brands are going to tinker with everything at once because they're all interrelated anyway. And like I said, so, some of this is uh, is getting not set in stone necessarily, but close to it. We're kind of at the, the limit. So again, that would be like your chainstay length is going to be limited to a certain degree by like how big the wheels are and your suspension travel and your suspension design and all that. And then the bottom bracket is kind of limited by you can make a bottom bracket as low as you want but they're practically speaking there's only so low that they can go um, before you can't ride the bike unless it's an e-bike with a throttle and then you don't need pedals right <laughs> true but that's called a motorcycle <laughs> so it does seem like you know after hearing you guys talk about this seems like there's definitely a relationship between longer and slacker but what about lower is that necessarily tied together or could that one be sort of done on its own and people are just throwing it in because it's popular to do right now well you could you could make a bike lower without adjusting anything else that's true and you could make a bike longer without adjusting anything else um, like if you just 
added to the top tube length without changing the head tube angle or adjusting the bottom bracket height, you could, you would end up with a longer bike, but it wouldn't be any lower or slacker. And this is, you know, this, like a, like I've said a couple times, I think this is kind of where we're just seeing companies tweak around the margins right now and really kind of like hone in on how they want their bikes to ride. So you, while you could do that, I, I think pe- most companies are still going to adjust at least a couple of those variables every time they release a new bike because it's kind of in their interest too, right? They, they're investing, especially working with carbon fiber, you're investing all this money in the molds, you don't want to make your bike longer one year and then everyone's like, you know, you're behind the trend and you didn't make it slack enough. And then you have to go back and make all new molds the next year to make it slacker. So you're going to see, you're not going to see too many bikes just adjusting one single thing at a time. Right on. So what is driving this shift to longer, lower slacker geometry? We're seeing, again, we're seeing many, many companies doing this all sort of at the same time. This isn't like some people think it's good and some people don't think it's good. It seems like there's a consensus that this is the way bikes should go. So what's driving that? In my opinion, it's all about ride quality. You know, I've only been riding mountain bikes for about 12, 13 years now, which I guess that's a lot to some people, not as much as you guys, but when I look at back at the mountain bikes I started off riding on and compare them to what we have today, man, the bikes back then were not great. Essentially, long, low, slack bikes ride better than they ever have before across the board, I could say with some confidence. Some of the Endure Bros I know here in Colorado locally who were early adopters of new long travel bikes, uh, long travel Enduro bikes, uh, you know, they rode great. Uh, but recently they, those same guys have commented that they were after initially the improved geometry, not necessarily the longer suspension travel. Now that we're seeing this slackened, longer, lower geometry come to trail bikes, I think we're going to see a lot more people buying trail bikes because they don't need, you know, a ton of suspension travel. They don't need an enduro bike, but they want a bike that's, that handles well and is comfortable and, and works well for them out on the trail. So I think that's a lot of, What's driving the change? Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, most riders identify as trail riders, so that means it means something a little bit different to everyone. But basically, people want a bike that climbs reasonably well, so they can go downhill really fast. I mean, that's just that's mountain biking. I know people like to call that enduro or whatever now, but that's just how most people ride. You know, cross country racing isn't nearly as popular as it used to be. Downhill still a very niche sport. Um, I mean, just in terms of practicality, most people don't have the terrain nearby for it. And you kind of need a lot of even more equipment. You need a dedicated downhill bike. But, you know, the, the flip side to that is, you know, the trails that we're riding every day, they're, they're getting gnarlier or they're getting faster. I mean, you know, there's a lot of flow trails and you can talk about whether that's good or bad, but the speeds you can get on flow trails are, are really high, you know, and there's huge jumps on flow trails. So the riders are getting more capable. The trails are getting either gnarly or faster. And, you know, components are getting stiffer and stronger. So the geometry has to keep up with the progression of the sport. Like everything's progressing. So each little piece is kind of contributing to making better bikes and riders. Like maybe the geo gets ahead of the bikes for a little bit, you know, like we used to see 32 millimeter forks spec'd on like a Yeti 575, you know, you could get a Yeti with 150 millimeter, like a six inch travel fork on it with 32 inch, 32 millimeter stanchions. Like that's a little spindly XC4. You'd never see that today. I mean, even on 
cross country bikes. Look at how most companies are specking their cross country bikes. They're specking them with 34 millimeter stanchion forks or, or larger. You know, you're not really seeing really spindly forks except for true, like dedicated classic cross country hardtails and maybe some full suspension. So it's like every little piece, you know, like maybe the geo gets ahead of, of the uh, components and the riders for a bit. And then, you know, the riders adapt to it and they get better. And then they start, you know, they start riding harder and the components aren't keeping up. So the components get burlier and then we can move the geometry a little bit further again. And, you know, the cycle just continues on and on. All right. After the break, we'll talk about the potential for a backlash against long, low slack geometry and also offer up some tips for folks who are happy with their bikes right now or those who are looking to go longer, lower, slacker on their current ride. Stay tuned. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for mountain bikers. Just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. So we've been talking about this for a while, but who is this Health IQ company anyway? Yeah, this isn't just some fly-by-night operation here. They're a Silicon Valley company, and uh, they work with some of the largest life insurance underwriters in the industry. They're also the fastest-growing life insurance agency with over $5 billion, that's with a B, in coverage. And, you know, you should go to Trustpilot if you don't believe us. Check out their reviews there. They've got a 9.6 out of 10 overall rating, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's like 96%. That's that's an A where I come from. That's good math. So is this some kind of lead generation thing where Health IQ just forwards your info onto another provider? No, Health IQ takes the customer through the journey from when they first submit interest to starting an application, going through underwriting to policy enforce. This policy ends up being underwritten by one of the top partners in the industry, an insurer. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash singletracks or mention the promo code singletracks when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Okay, so we're back. I want to ask you guys, with all these changes, do you think there's the potential for a backlash against long, low, slack geometry? Uh, is it possible that we'll take this too far? And what are sort of the limits? So there are definitely limits. And in general, with mountain bike design, I feel like the limits are the human body for the most part. And it seems to me like we're pretty close to hitting some of these limits in some respects. For instance, I think some of the top tube length limits could be dependent on your body type, such as the length of your torso, like how tall you are, but how that relates to the length of your arms and all those sorts of things. Um, the width of your handlebar factors in that as well, but there's there's all kinds of things that happen on a mountain bike to affect this, like your seat tube angle and different, your setback, different things like that. But it can only get so long before, you know, you were, we're super stretched out and that's not great. So we're going to hit limits and those limits are the human body. But, um, here's a, for example, for instance, the top two length of the Ibis Mojo HD4 I just reviewed basically grew by an entire frame size comparable to their previous models. Now, some people argue this is just keeping up with what all the other bikes are doing, but if this continues, um, some people like myself might have to find themselves sizing down from the bike size that they used to ride. So essentially, you know, if I was on a medium before, like five years ago, I might have to be down on a size small in the future. Like that's a very real possibility because of those reach numbers growing. 
The other thing to think about with the, the bike sizing is that the standover height is not necessarily as closely tied to the frame size anymore. So, Aaron, do you have any thoughts on standover height and how that relates? Yeah, so I think more than looking at your nominal frame size or your seat tube length, which hardly anyone uses these days, I think Trek maybe still does, but there's a super confusing because they use an effective measurement and an actual measurement just to muddy things further. Um, you really need to look at standover for one and then the reach of the bike. That's, that's a measurement that's becoming more and more important. And what reach is, it's probably a little hard to describe, but that's the distance between your bottom bracket and the if you drew a line vertically from the center of your bottom bracket to where it intersected a line from the center of your head tube. So that's going to kind of give you an idea of how the bike is going to ride when when you're descending. So when the saddle's out of the way, that's like how much room you have to move back and forth uh, along the top tube. So you know, like the chainstay length, I think most companies have figured out how to get standover heights really low. And, you know, this is, this is why that matters. And if you look at the Santa Cruz Bronson, for instance, uh, you know, one of the most popular trail bikes around, there's only a seven millimeters of difference in standover between a small frame and a large frame. That's pretty minimal. I mean, most people, unless you're, you know, if you're just barely, Clearing a small frame, you know, what's seven more millimeters? You could probably clear a large frame as well. But when you look at the reach, there's a 40 millimeter difference between a small and a large frame. So obviously, you know, that's a pretty extreme example. You're not going to be deciding between a small and a large, but you might be on the fence between a small frame and a medium, or you might be on the fence between a medium and a large. So what that does, like what keeping the standover heights comparable does is it lets the rider choose how long of a bike they want. So maybe you want a little bit longer bike. Maybe you like that feel, so you size up. Or maybe you like a little bit more nimble bike. You want a little bit snappier. Your trails are a little bit tighter. You size down. So you're seeing, you know, more and more companies get their standover heights as low as possible, at least on the kind of like small to, you know, medium or small to large size frames. Once you get up to extra large, you know, you got to make the frame substantially larger. So sometimes you'll see a big jump in the, in the standover on that. But I mean, if you're buying an XL frame, chances are you're six, two or you got to just take what you can get. Exactly. Yeah. You get the scraps, but yeah, I, um, long story short, you know, you pay close attention to the reach. Um, and this means like figure out what the reach is on your current bike, whether you like it, whether you don't, you know, test a bike with a longer reach, test a bike with a shorter reach and kind of see where, where your personal preferences lie. And that's going to, that's going to help you when you're selecting your, your new bike is the reach number. And we're seeing companies emphasize this more on their geometry charts. It kind of used to be maybe not even listed or down towards the bottom, but I mean, like Santa Cruz, for instance, this is actually the first number that they list on their geometry charts now. So that's why, that's why it matters. Another way to look at, you know, whether or not there's going to be backlash is to think about the entire range of head tube angles that we have on all mountain bikes across the spectrum. So the difference between a World Cup XC hardtail race bike to a dual crown downhill bike isn't massive in number. Of course, it rides radically different, but here's an example. So Scott's scale 29er hardtail has a 69 and a half degree head tube angle, whereas their downhill bike has a 63 degree head tube angle. So that means the entire spectrum of pretty much all mountain bike head tube angles falls on a 6.5 degree spread. So to me, that says that 
yeah, these things are changing. We're constantly tweaking, but there's not going to be a heck of a lot of room for massive change in the future. So I think we're hitting some of our limits and we have it pretty, pretty dialed overall. For instance, uh, I know we're not trying to throw too many numbers at you, but IBIS settled on exactly a 64.9 degree head tube angle for the new HD4. A tenth of a degree they, they thought was important. So um, we're seeing people dial this stuff in. So I don't think we're going to see massive, massive changes to this in the future. So as we said at the start of the episode, these longer, lower, slacker geometry numbers are hitting bikes pretty much across the board from cross country to trail and enduro bikes. So what does this mean for people who kind of like the geometry on their current bikes? Is it going to be hard to find bikes in the future that are not long, low slack? Are people being sort of left out, you know, if they're still holding on to a, a bike with outdated quote unquote geometry? Yeah, it means if uh, if they like it that much, they better hang on to their current bike as for as long as possible. Even companies that are taking kind of a more measured approach to tweaking their geometry, they're still tinkering with things, and nothing is going to be static. You can't expect – that's just how mountain biking goes. You can't expect everything to be put on pause because you like your bike that you bought 10 years ago. I mean, everything changes. You know, the forks change, the shocks change, the you know all the components change, the – wheel sizes change. So yeah, if you really like the current geometry of your bike, hang on to it. So then I guess the other question is, is long, low slack for everyone? You know, if you are happy with your current bike, are you going to be unhappy with a bike that's longer, lower slacker? You know, we're talking about like this imaginary rider who really likes their bike. If I'd ask that dude if they've tried a long, low slack version of their bike, because really, aside from the XC Racer, I think LLS can generally benefit just about everyone. One thing I did think of when Aaron was mentioning you hanging on to your bike is we are seeing more adjustments available for geometry. King Creek has a headset geometry changer and generally use that to slacken your head too, but I believe you can work the other direction as well. So theoretically, you could throw one of those on there and steepen the head tube angle on your bike, but my question is, why would you want to, essentially? So what I do think we're seeing a little bit of, depending on the brand, is some bikes a switching category with their long, low slack treatment. A great example is Niner. The Jet 9 essentially went from XC to Trail, the Rip 9 from Trail to Enduro, the WFO 9, the previous Enduro bike, was discontinued, and then they introduced the RKT 9 to take over the XC category. And... To me, the switching of categories of bikes with the same model name from one year to the other is, is extremely confusing. Uh, so I could see, you know, the, this potential buyer like saying, Oh, I've got the Jet 9. He goes to buy a Jet 9. It's a radically different bike from what it was two years ago. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that it makes no sense, but I, I'd say in Niner's case, the changing of the categories has more to do with the added suspension travel than just the geometry. You know, Niner could have kept the Jet and XC bike with 100 millimeters of travel and just tweaked the geometry on it. But instead, they increased suspension travel front and rear, and that effectively moved it out of the XC category and into trail. So yeah, we are seeing that. But again, I think more so than geometry, it's uh, it's been this like arms race of uh, suspension travel increase. But back to Jeff's question, though, uh, I think LLS geometry is kind of like the dropper post in that 
every rider can benefit from it, even if they're being stubborn and they say they don't need it. Um, you know, we see that all the time. Anytime we post anything about dropper posts, somebody says, well, I've been riding for 25 years and I didn't have a dropper post, so I don't need it. Cool. Cool story. But, you know, if you actually try it and, you know, you're open-minded about it, chances are you'll, you'll love it. So that said, you know, part of the reason, you know, part of a brand's reputation is built on the ride characteristics of their bikes. You know, so they risk losing customers if they totally change what their bikes are known for, you know, kind of, you know, like Greg said, I mean, that could be an issue with Niner because if you've been riding a jet, you've had a couple of their old bikes and then you go to, you know, you were ready for a new one and you go and look at the jet now and it's not, not the same bike. But generally, you know, generally, uh, companies are going to tweak their geometry, but they want to, they want to maintain that ride quality and characteristics that they're known for. You know, if you look at Ibis, for example, they, for a while, they're offering two versions of their Ripley 29er. They're offering a standard version and an LS version, which I think was stood for low and slack or long and slack. One of those, they didn't have two L's in it. But this year, they actually, they are just offering an LS version, which tells me that that's the model that won out, right? Like their customer base obviously liked the long and slack version better and it was selling better. Otherwise, why would you cut a model from their line? But even if you look at you know, even if you look at the Ripley, the LS, you look at the geometry numbers, it is longer and slacker than the standard model, but it doesn't go crazy in any one direction. You know, the geometry, if you compare it to other trail bikes, is, you know, it's pretty middle of the road. It's got a pretty short reach on it, which is kind of something that, um, you know, Ibis's bikes are known for. If you look at the, the reach numbers across the board, the Ibis geometry is going to be a little bit more conservative than other brands out there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because, right, like some people like how those bikes ride, you know, like Specialized is known for really short chain stays and, you know, pretty short reach. And that makes their bikes like really snappy. Same thing for, for Ibis. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go in and adjust everything and add a whole bunch of travel and make it make this bike, you know, super long and slack. If you've got this loyal following and they know your bikes as riding a certain way, and then you come, come out with a new bike, that's just totally different. You know, you, you may lose some customers doing that. Yeah. So I'm the one who came up with these questions and maybe I thought of these questions because I'm that guy who's, you know, doesn't buy a new bike that often. And I've been riding for 25 years now or so. And you know, I'm always a little bit skeptical about geometry changes and things like that. Um, and not quick to adopt sort of the new stuff, but I can say that based on my tests of a lot of new bikes, especially enduro bikes, they're awesome. You know, that this long, low slack thing, I think it is a really great thing and it does take some getting used to because it is different, but it, in the long run, I think it is really dialed and People are gravitating toward this because it actually is really good. And then the other thing I'll say is because I'm the guy who doesn't upgrade his bike all that often, I certainly don't buy new bikes very often. I've found ways to sort of tweak my existing bike to give it a little bit of the same feel as some of these newer, longer, lower slacker bikes, um, specifically by converting my 29er to a half 27.5 plus bike. Uh, I kind of did this by accident, but, but yeah, I ended up putting a 27.5 plus wheel on the back of my 29er full suspension bike. And 
what that did was it made the bike more slack and it also made the bottom bracket lower and it really rides it rides much better than it did before I, i'm really enjoying it it's kind of given a new life to this older bike that by now is probably five six years old seven i don't even know but the other thing that Aaron and I were talking about too is, you know, could you make your bike longer? And I think people might be tempted to try to do that, you know, by putting like a longer stem on their bikes or pushing the handlebars out. But as Aaron pointed out, that's actually going to not be super awesome because it's going to change the steering and also sort of your weight balance, right? Yeah. So when, I mean, that's why you're seeing companies now when they make a bike longer, they're usually pairing that with a, a shorter stem to keep you in a good position for cornering and descending. Whereas just slapping a longer stem on your bike, it's going to give you a longer effective reach, but it's, yeah, it's going to do weird things with your handling. It's going to mess up your steering. So that's, that's a, that wouldn't be the way to go. If you wanted to make your bike longer, probably the easiest way to do it or the best way wouldn't necessarily be easy to be expensive would be to put a longer travel fork on. So longer travel fork, again, like we said, that's going to slack, slacken your head tube and also lengthen the wheelbase of your bike, which, you know, may be beneficial if you can get away with that on your bike. You know, sometimes there are manufacturer guidelines where they don't want you running a super long fork. You know, if you have a cross country hardtail with a hundred millimeter fork on it and you try to go slap a 160 fork, that's probably going to ride like crap. Um, but you and know, avoid your warranty. Yeah, totally avoid your warranty. You might rip your head tube off your frame. But if you, you know, if you're going from, you know, maybe like 120 to 140, that's a little bit more reasonable. And, like Greg mentioned, there are like angle sets as well, which is a, a headset where you can adjust the head tube angle. So if you want to try a longer bike, a slacker bike, you could do it with your current fork. You put an angle set in there if your frame is compatible and you can actually adjust the geometry. So you can keep your suspension travel, but make the front end slacker. And the flip side to that would be if you went with a longer travel fork, you could flip that angle set around and then steepen the head tube angle back up a little bit just to keep like the steering, you know, a little closer to stock if you find that it handles weird. So lots of little things you can do to your bike. I mean, there's no shortage of adjustments you can make. Those are great tips. Awesome. Well, I know I've certainly learned a lot about long, low and slack bikes and what that means. And I'm also really excited about the future to see sort of how that filters out across the board. We say this all the time, but we really, really want you to rate the Single Tracks podcast. Do it. We know you're riding in the car right now or you're, you know, at the gym. Hopefully you're not at the gym. That's boring. Hopefully you're out riding some trails right now. And we know you can't quickly get to the phone and tap out a review, but put it on your to-do list. Remind yourself to do it when you're back at the computer. And it would really help us out and help more people find us on the iTunes store and Google Play and Stitcher and all the other places where people find the Single Tracks podcast. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you next week. Peace.